Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be getting deep into the chapters we're discussing today and those that came before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we're discussing here will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show that he watched a decade ago. Today we're going to be discussing Tyrion 3, Arya 2, and Danny 3 of A Game of Thrones. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dan. We've uh, we've got some exciting things going on this time. We're recording in person. We're for in once. person. It's almost like COVID never happened. Cheers. Look at us not social distancing. I think cheers indeed. Although we also live in different states, so COVID really doesn't play too big of a factor. You know, Michael, you really put the social in social distancing. Just not trying to hang out with you anytime soon. I like to think I put the distance in social distancing. It can be both. It's emotional distance. So should we uh, jump straight into this? Yeah, so it's fun. I'm glad to be sitting here with you, but, you know, it's been a minute since we last talked. Where where are we? What is happening? Yeah, last time we were here, uh, I'll, I'll handle the recap for once. Last time we were here, we had Catelyn get to King's Landing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ned chatted with her we got some fireworks between ned and littlefinger who is kind of a dick and we also hung out with lord Varys for the first time and uh we really got to see john and Tyrion's bromance continue to blossom up on the wall uh john learned that bran had woken up and uh Tyrion was there for that conversation and john's bedding in at the night's watch if you will i kind of love their bromance our two little grotesques well, I'm, uh, I'm sorry to say it seems like it's about to end. Whoa. Spoilers, Dan. At Spoilers. least for now. Who's to say? And so we begin Tyrion 3. Tyrion 3. And let's jump right into spoilers. Um, but, but I will say, I mean, even as we're starting off with Tyrion 3 here, I really do love this friendship and relationship. Uh, but Tyrion 3 starts with Tyrion... Basically talking to some of the leaders of the Night's Watch yeah, and starting to let them know, like, hey, it's time for him to start leaving. And we end up in this, and I know I'm jumping, you know, a few pages in right away, but okay. but, uh, but basically the leaders of the, the, the leadership of the Night's Watch are basically saying, can you please take a message to your family, right? to the king? We need support. The Night's Watch is dying. And it's a bit, I don't know if Tyrion would feel this way, but I felt this way. It's a little emotional. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think Tyrion kind of mocks it a little bit. He gets that conversation in with Mormont. Uh, I think it's worthwhile introducing some of the characters here who we haven't necessarily mm-hmm. gotten to meet all that well yet. But like you said, this is the head honchos at the Night's Watch. He's with Lord Commander J.R. Mormont. Alistair Thorne, who we met last time. He's the drill sergeant. Sir Jeremy Ricker. Maester Eamon and Bowen Marsh, and those three last names, this is really our first time interacting with them at all. Mm. Uh, and I, I think it starts off with a fun little set piece that you skipped right past, which is just Tyrion making fun of Alistair Thorne, who is, is not capable of taking a joke at all. It's, it's fun to... Uh, Tyr- Tyrion pl- provides such like a wonderful... like. Uh, I don't know if you'd even call it a foil, but to everybody. I mean, he is the jester, and he is the... Yeah. You know, sort of clown, but super intelligent clown who's able to kind of play and fit in. He's witty. Yeah, witty is a great way to put it, if not the right way to put it. There are a couple of nice little character moments here. Sir Alistair Thorne gets really upset because, uh, well, first he challenges Tyrion to a fight. Yeah, to a duel. (laughs) Kind of messed up. Tyrion is 
a quarter his size or whatever. But Tyrion gets up on the table with his crab fork and says, all right, let's do it right here. And that's the thing that makes Alistair Thorne leave so stiffly it looked as though he had a dagger up his butt, which is quite a visual. I feel like I would work, walk more than stiffly with a dagger up my butt, but neither here nor there. You'd think you'd want to take the dagger out before you walked anywhere. I'll add, and, and again, I know I'm kind of pushing us, jumping around a little bit and pushing us a little further into yeah. the chapter, but something really struck me throughout this, and, and, I, and I do want to point at a couple things as I'm getting into this. We hear again about Sir Royce. Uh-huh. Uh, and basically, you know, as part of this conversation, you have this leadership turning to Tyrion and saying, we need help. Here's some examples of bad things that have happened. We've lost. We're getting, you know, the few that do come in, we end up losing quickly. Uh, we don't know why. We've lost. Benjamin Stark hasn't even come back from what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, but then the thing that I wanted to point out that struck me is that there's this. I don't know if the characters themselves even realize it, but we get to realize it as the reader. There are two narratives happening at the same time. The diminishment of the Night's Watch has, as far as I can tell, very little to do with the looming and growing threat beyond the wall. Fewer people are... What what do you mean? Well, what I mean is this. We have the Night's Watch saying two things at the same time, and I don't know if they feel this way, but this is how I take it. Okay. On the one hand, they say... Our numbers are dwindling. We are, we are having a hard time getting yeah. conscripts. We're, we're, we can't get enough people to come up here. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, they're also saying, those that are up here, there seems to be something happening. Winter is coming, as right. they repeat over and over again. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're saying, like, man, like, here's Sir Royce was this young, you know, eager go-getter. And we thought we sent him out with some experienced guys to help him out and, and, and do fine. But then they didn't come back. Or he didn't. You know, Gerard right. had his own thing. And then, you know, again, now Benjamin Stark went out to try to find him. And he hasn't come back. And so it's almost, you know, I can imagine being in Tyrion's, you know, child-sized shoes. And kind of hearing some of this and saying, yeah, okay, this is an ancient and dying need that's unnecessary. There's no way I'm going to bring this back up with my family. And I think that he's right. But at the same time, we know that there's more going on than just, you know, people aren't signing up for this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're picking up on, on something interesting here. It's definitely clear that this is a bad time for the Night's Watch to be running up against these troubles, which is why... Mm -hmm. Lord Commander Mormont is really insisting on on getting Tyrion to send for help. You know, you know us, you know what we're doing here, you know that we need the help, please help us out. And it seems to me that while there isn't concrete information, I mean, it's pretty clear that Lord Mormont does not know exactly what's going on. He's got this sense of foreboding surrounding things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can see how easy it is for Tyrion coming up from the south and not having the exposure to the world that Mormont does to write this off as an old man facing his twilight years and, and getting scared about the things that are out there. And to that, I really like there's a part here where uh, Lord Mormont basically says, once, once the watch spent its summers building and each Lord Commander raised the wall higher than he found it, now it's all we can do to stay alive. And t- Tyrion responds basically in his own mind and he basically says, you know, Tyrion realized he was deadly earnest and Tyrion felt embarrassed for the old man. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting. You know, we have a couple of instances of of Tyrion reacting this way to earnestness, which I also think is an interesting note about his character. There's a brief conversation between him and Maester Aemon earlier on in the chapter where Maester Aemon starts saying nice things about Tyrion. Uh, 
you know, you may be small, but I, I think a giant comes among us. And each of these moments where it's genuine kindness being offered to him by these men, he really kind of, uh, he doesn't know how to take a compliment. He kind of mm. uh, folds in upon himself. We're in his head here, so we see him thinking about how it's tough. And I think it's interesting to see how sometimes he's able to steel himself against the insults uh, and things bringing mm. up his disability, but it's the actual kindness that he's not used to handling. I like that, actually. Yeah, that, that's a really fair and good yeah. point. I want to touch on on just some, some quick hit facts from these conversations mm-hmm. here uh, before we keep moving, because I think you're, you're hitting on the core of what's going on with the Night's Watch falling apart, but we do get some other info that I think is important to highlight. Uh, the first one, like I mentioned, we're, we get introduced to a bunch of these officers, and we get a little bit of backstory on a couple of them that really plays into what we've been talking about in the past in terms of the the dynamics and in particular the class dynamics at the wall lord mormont is lamenting the types of people that he gets to join uh he he says at one point the night's watch has become an army of sullen boys and tired old men Hmm. and that that goes along with the line that you had about raising the wall but the sullen old men are these knights that came here in specific situations so alistair thorne and Sir Jeremy Ricker, we learned, both ended up here because they fought on the wrong side at King's Landing. That's right. In Robert's Rebellion. So Robert took over uh, and, uh, I guess, gave people on the opposite side, you know, an option. We're going to execute you for opposing my rebellion, now successful rebellion, for committing treason against who is now the king. Or you can go up to the Night's Watch. Uh, And and so that's an, an interesting note just to remember. And maybe ties in a little bit to some of Sir Alistair Thorne's bitterness in mm. general, but also specifically to John as a member of the family that, that took him down. But then after the rest of the officers leave, Mormont gets into this conversation with Tyrion where he's really begging it. And we get even more information to pile on to what we've had come before uh, about the current state of the Night's Watch. Like you said, we talked about the desertions and the people that are disappearing. But we also hear, in addition to the three castles out of however many it was that they have staffed, uh, there's a thousand miles of wall that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mormont points out, I have three men to defend each mile of wall. Excuse me, not a thousand miles. There are 300 miles of wall and about a thousand thousand men. men. I had this backwards. Uh, Three men to defend each mile, Tyrion thinks to himself. Three and a third. Uh, but doesn't say it out loud. So I just think those are interesting notes, maybe informing us a little bit about why Mormont is feeling so down about things. You know, I I want to take a brief sidestep and talk just about kind of like the story and, and writing style for a second, because there's actually, I have two minor yet important complaints that I want to make for a second. Okay. One, and I'll start with the smaller one first. One is... I didn't count them, but the number of times that they say in this this chapter, winter is coming, <laughs> kills me. Maybe that should be our drinking game. We were trying. Oh to my god, I don't think I could drink that much. Yeah. I'm drinking plenty right now. I, can, I don't know if I could drink that much. What but, do you think it means? Is uh, winter coming? You know, I wonder. Well, and and this is <laughs> well, it's funny because it's it, it's it's a fun it's a fun thing to kind of like laugh at, and, and I get it. I'm there, but. The the threat of winter coming is very present, mm-hmm. but what winter brings is not. 
And this is starting to rub me the wrong way a bit. I get it. I know that it's been the warm season for a right. long time. I understand that we've had some really good, prosperous times. they make times. all of this explicit in this conversation. They yeah. do. It's constantly coming through. But I will say that I, as a reader, and again, with that sidestep, right? So, so here I am, like, just looking at myself reading this. I'm really having a bit of a hard time. I get it. I understand that it's been prosperous, but I don't understand what we're worried about. Mm-hmm. What is so bad about winter? And this goes into my other, the other point that I wanted to make here. With all of this talk about the diminishment of the role of Night's Watch yeah. and not enough people there, I, and I was hoping maybe I missed it, but I don't understand what the value of the Night's Watch so once I'm gonna, was. I'm going to skip ahead here to another chapter that we're going to get into in a moment because uh, I think that maybe that'll help here because the, the thing we hear from Ned in the very next chapter, Mm -hmm. Arya's chapter. Ned, these are his house words, winter is coming. And the thing he tells her is when the long winter comes, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. And what we have here is the Night's Watch dwindling, becoming maybe that lone wolf and exposing itself. But Mm -hmm. even more so, we have the Seven Kingdoms, which are one nation in name under Robert, not guarding this northern border, not standing up against the wall, not supporting this. And, you know, Tyrion says, you know, I do what I say I'm going to do. I'm going to bring this message, but nobody's going to listen to it. Right. And so that right there, that is not the pack holding together, that this is supposed to be one country dealing with its things. And, you know, we know Robert is looking to the east. He's looking to the potential resurgent threat of the Targaryens. Mm Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, this northern border where you have this giant magical wall that was built at some point, and we don't know why, that is no longer being defended. Yeah. Well, I I guess, again, just as a reader and my own little complaint, and by the way, like, little complaint, I'm having fun with everything, but with that said, I'm going to make a prediction. Yeah, hit me. I'm going to predict that later, whether it's in this book, but I assume later in the series... The threat of whatever it is that lays beyond the wall, these, this okay. foreshadowing of winter, and that and it's coming. Is it, is it going to come? Well, if you treat her right. Oh God! Uh, <laughs> cherish her. Uh, but I will say, this is my prediction. We're going to come to a point where the threat of what's beyond the wall becomes a larger existential threat than the inter- the infighting that we can already start to feel between Lannisters and Starks a little bit and mm-hmm. what's going on Baratheons there. Baratheons and Targaryens. Exactly. And yeah. so all of a sudden there will be something larger. And if that does happen, and, and I want to appreciate for a second, there are many books and we are at the beginning of a long book. For all I know, yeah. there will be more context to this Five chapters from now. Right. 50 pages from now. But with that said, at this point, at page 200, we're in our 200th page right now, I'm a little let down that there's not more deeper understanding and conveyance of understanding and information about just why this wall is important. Right. Well, let's let's talk about this a little bit, because we do have some instinct of what the threats beyond the wall are. We have been introduced to two very concrete ones. The first one from the very opening pages of this book, obviously, is Mm -hmm. the others. We have the White Walkers. They showed up. They killed Waymar Royce. They scared the shit out of Garrett and made him uh, desert. We know that that is there, and we know that there have been other people going missing. We also know that there is this guy, Mance Raider, 
and we know that he has been bringing wildlings to him, and that's really all we've heard about him, that Mm -hmm. Ned talked about, I may need to ride north and deal with this. Now Ned's in the south. And so the Night's Watch are dealing with a couple of things. So I guess I'm throwing this to you to try and and unpack what you're thinking about this. I mean, you're saying you're frustrated we haven't gotten it outright, but we have gotten some indications. So what do you... What do you see coming down the pipeline? Well, I, well, even before the pipeline, and I just want to say, because you brought up White Walkers, and even literally just now in this chapter, as Tyrion and whoever it is he's talking to, the leadership of Night's Watch, mm-hmm. are having this conversation, Mormont himself turns around and says, the fisher folk near Eastwatch have glimpsed White Walkers on the shore. Yeah. And in my mind, again, if White Walkers were really this a huge issue, like, like even just as a way to put it in, in perspective... The fact that the Starks earlier the, in their first chapter, I think it was a Ned, maybe it was Brand, 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 Brand one, yeah. they found a dire wolf, and that's a magical moment to find right. a dire wolf. The fact that White Walkers have been glimpsed, yeah, empirically, factually, this is part of the world today, is not generating a larger reaction from Tyrion. Is a, is a bit of a strange thing Well, to he me. doesn't believe it. I mean, we get that pretty explicitly. Is it that he doesn't believe it, or is he's, it that he just scoffs? Matter? You know, and he scoffs, and he has this internal monologue that he's thinking about that mm, we see. Fair. He doesn't okay. say all of it outright, but he's like, okay, you know, Mormon is really trying to emphasize the importance of what he's doing. Um, and, and so you're right that this was if this was a threat that was believed, then yeah. they should be reinforcing, but it's clearly not. And I'll, and I'll add, you're right. The next line, literally after of what I just said, is that this time Tyrion could not hold his tongue. The f- he yeah. says, the fisher folk of Lannisport often glimpse merlings. Yes. Uh, and so, okay, so that's that's fair. It's I guess. And like, then I'll, I'll add to that yeah. also. Well, I mean, actually, this is is maneuvering us a little bit in a slightly different direction. But we get a lot of conversation about the wildlings. Uh, that mm-hmm. was, you know, that was what the prologue was about. They were tracking wildlings. Mm-hmm. They were they were raiders. There was a raiding party, and they were trying to chase them out there. And you have this gigantic, silly, gigantic wall that was put up mm-hmm. that is made of ice that we have no idea how it was built or how this was taken care of and what the night's watch is doing is dealing with raids from this barbarian culture right okay and so you know if that is what it is they're doing and i'll ask you if you think that is what the purpose of the night's watch and the wall was and we, we can get into that in a moment but if that's the goal does it really matter if they have a thousand men does it right. really matter if they only end up at twelve hundred? I suppose. I suppose to the question that you asked earlier, you know, in my prediction and things like this, I think that. And again, talking about this as a reader, and you know, where I'm at with with the writing itself and, and the story as it's kind of unfolding, it seems that there's an imbalance between the focus of winter coming and a new threat arriving. Yeah versus the the reality of why the Night's Watch exists. Uh-huh. And it seems like if everybody is so bent on this fact that winter is coming, and it, with it comes these horrible things, uh, then then I wish there was a little bit more talk of the last winter. Right. What had happened. But with yeah, that said, I, I understand. Yeah. References, but it, it seems clear to me from how oblique the references are that this was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And it... Whatever the original purpose was, we have no information on that. Certainly the purpose now, as it's seen by Tyrion and as it seems to have been seen by Waymar Royce, by Mormont potentially, you know, he's making these references, but we don't know where he lands on whether this is real, Mm -hmm. that their role is to defend the northern border against the wildlings. And the primary threat that we've heard about, the one Ned was worried about earlier Mm -hmm. on in the book, 
was Mance Raider, who seems to be turning this barbarian raiding culture into something more of a threat. I got you. Uh, okay. and, and so, you know, if that's the case, Mormont is justified in seeking more men and wanting to genuinely defend against that. But that also helps explain why he's getting a little bit more doubt from people in the South who, you know, the North is big. It's going to take a while for any army to reach us. Who really cares? Well, I guess as an armchair editor, my comment to Mr. George R.R. R. Martin, who I understand to be a novice writer who yeah. has never published a book before, we'll let him know. is that he should be stronger about the realities of the situation and more uh, suggestive and subtle about this sort of fantasy threat that's coming. And I feel like it's the opposite. You just want smarter characters. And like, who doesn't, right? That's fair. But that takes us out of the first part of this chapter, which is really this conversation. The Night's Watch making their plea to Tyrion to take their need for more men back down to King's Landing. And Tyrion, all of a sudden, a strange madness took hold of him. A yearning to get back to the top of that wall. He wants to take a look. There's an elevator. There is an elevator. I'm actually, I like that. Right? I think it's cool. It's it's cool that like there's, there's like these essentials. Yeah. It's Could you imagine if you had to like walk up be there? Horrible. That'd be the wor- he's tiny. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It'd, it'd be horrible for a normal. One person. step, two steps at a time. Yeah, right. That's it's miserable. Yeah, we got a, a couple little moments here. A lot of description of the surrounding countryside. I just want to briefly mention we we get our first mention of Molestown, which is the closest village nearby. You can see that from the elevator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it's just a really long ride up, and and the writing really makes clear how long. <laughs> well, I will. Quickly skip past a lot of that. Uh, Tyrion decides to go up to the wall. And and I think that we mentioned this a moment ago, but just to restress it, uh, this conversation that that Tyrion's been having with the leadership is because he's leaving. Yes. And they want him to, you know, take this message. And he says, before I leave, I do want to go back to the top of the wall. He goes. We also forgot to mention mm -hmm. earlier, uh, Mormont offered him uh, an escort to Winterfell, and Yorin is going to go with him. So we know right. Yorin from earlier. Yep. Tyrion's going to get to travel with him again. Yorin's the recruiter, for anybody who doesn't remember, and he's going to go out on another recruiting trip and keep Tyrion company. But before he leaves, still nighttime, he goes up to the top of the wall, and there he sees he locks eyes with his best friend. It's really adorable. It really is! Tyrion and John. Yeah. I've watched that sitcom. Yeah. A little odd couple situation. Oh, God. They're they're so great. <laughs> but it is a really sweet moment, to be quite honest. Uh, Tyrion goes up to the top of the wall, and sure enough, who's the person that's on guard duty while they're up there? It's Jon. Well, this isn't really a, a luck of the draw thing. We, we learn <laughs> that Jon keeps getting Nightwatch yeah, every Yeah, Jon's getting a little bit of punishment. Sir Alistair uh, Thorne hates him. That's fair. That's that's fair. <laughs> but, but I will say, and I thought this was a really sweet you know, here I, I've been complaining about writing style a little bit and all of that, but I thought a really sweet addition into this sort of character development between and the relationship between Tyrion and Jon was uh, Tyrion's, not only is his relationship with Jon growing, but also with Ghost. Yes. Uh, and, and there's a little bit more sort of friendliness there. And they really, and, and I think... We I, love all the puppy moments. Yeah. I, I assume you're referring to Tyrion's emotions. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but I do think it, it, it's just sweet to see that they are obviously becoming... I'm not going to say close in like a sense of like they're actually becoming close, but their friendship, it, what they have is becoming a friendship. And, and it's really, I'm enjoying that a lot. I agree. And uh, Tyrion, I'm sorry, John, John is sad to see Tyrion go. Yeah. And, uh, and he, you know, 
Tyrion, and so are we. Yeah, it's, it's I, you know, and I, there's plenty to say here. They they have a good conversation together, but mostly it's John, you know, Tyrion saying, "What messages can I take back to Winterfell?" Yeah. And John says, "Tell everybody I miss them and stay strong, and I'm a man and be yeah. manly." I think I think John's specific requests here are really cute, so I'm just gonna run through those real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, "Tell Rob that I'm I'm gonna command the Night's Watch soon and keep him safe." So he might as well take up needlework with the girls and have Micken, the blacksmith, melt down his sword for horseshoes. Uh, Tyrion responds to this saying, I'm not going to tell him that Rob will stab me. That's also fair. Uh, He says, tell Rickon that I've left and I'm not going to be coming home. He'll be confused about that and he can have all of my things while I'm away. And uh, I don't really know what to say to Bran, but can you figure something out? And I actually think this moment's really interesting because uh, earlier when Tyrion was telling Mormont that he was planning on leaving, he actually says, can I bring John as my escort? And Mormont mm. says no. And I, I thought this quote really dovetailed with this conversation later. Mormont says, the young ones need to forget the lives they left behind them, the brothers and mothers and all that. A visit home would only stir up feelings best left alone. And then he muses on his own difficulties with that. He has nieces he's never met. His sister now mm. rules Bear Island, yeah. his seat in his stead, and he hasn't seen her in years. Uh, and so it, this just really highlights how much John is really failing at that part of becoming part of the Night's Watch. He is missing his family, and Sir Thorne has not beat that out of him yet. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up, because a question in my mind is, because I keep losing track of this, and, and I don't think it's because it's not being said as much as I'm just losing track. How long has John been up there? To me, it feels like only a few weeks at this point. I think it is a few weeks, and and that's a very fair point. You know, it takes a longer time Mm -hmm. to solidify that. You know, I think the temporal reference that we've gotten so far is that his birthday was a couple weeks ago, and that was when Benjen was supposed to be expected to get back. So figure, like, a month, maybe a little longer. So, like, yeah, in terms of forget about your family, we're not there yet. That's fair. Well, they have this lovely conversation, and through it, and I don't think we're, we're diving into the specifics enough, but the fact is, is that there is a friendship there and and Tyrion is feeling a little bit in fact I just see the line here that I underlined Tyrion found himself oddly touched yeah uh it's sweet it is very nice but I do want to kind of go one step past this conversation in the chapter where Tyrion is looking out the wall and he's actually he's he's pointing out these two things that I really enjoyed hearing about one is that there is a portion of land that the night's watch keeps yeah. clear yes and which sounds like a really smart like military right. strategy. Yeah. We don't want hiding spaces close to us. This is all open. But then right beyond that is this dense, haunted impenetrable forest. forest. Yeah. You know, and and honestly, you know, going back to what I said earlier and maybe even taking it back just a little bit, you know, what is the threat? Why do we need a night's watch? How interesting that all of a sudden we get these eyes, these King's Landing eyes, to look out and see just how threatening this forest can be. Yeah. This is not a forest that you can just plow down and and open up the space and all of that. This is a forest that has its own life and with it its own people and threats. And I just thought that was interesting to see and experience. Yeah, I I think that also tells us a lot about what we were hearing from Mormont earlier. Mm. I, I really do want to emphasize, I mentioned it earlier, we don't have a clear sense of what Mormont believes or doesn't believe. Whether mm-hmm. he believes the, the Fisher people in terms of seeing the others. I mean, Garrett gave his report directly to Ned. We don't know if he heard anything about that mission. Um, but we do know that the others have not been around for a long time. We don't know where he lands. But 
it's so much easier to think the worst in a mythical sense when you're looking at it. You know, when you're staring down the dark stairs into the basement in your very safe suburban mm-hmm. home, it's very easy to imagine you're in the slasher film. And Tyrion really has that moment here. We have this, you know, Tyrion could almost believe the others were coming. His jokes of grumpkins and snarks no longer seemed quite so droll. Mm. And so, you know, that has a flip side to it. I think it's interesting that Tyrion gets the real impression of seeing, oh, crap, we do need to worry about this border. This is something we should take seriously. But we also get, okay, Tyrion can now understand why members of the Night's Watch might be jumping a little more at shadows. And you go back to the sunlight, and it doesn't seem quite so scary anymore. And you say, oh, they're just worried because they're staring into the darkness. It's not actually real. Well, I think... You know, again, I want to just step to the side and, and be that armchair editor again for a second. <laughs> I really do wish there was more of a leaning into that sort of military perspective. We keep borders safe. Your safety is what gives you the luxury to ignore yeah. us. But because we're dwindling, that safety will come away. And I, I, I just, I really do wish I heard more of that. Yeah. Uh, but so be it. And we're hearing it now through Tyrion's, you know, thoughts and process and all of that. I. Uh, and then I will say, you know, just to kind of move us, uh, we kind of, that, this really brings us to the end of the chapter. Yeah. Uh, the, Tyrion just sort of talking to John. Tyrion's about to leave, and this really sweet moment where John is sort of being this man, this this man man, and saying, "I'll go out and find those that are lost." And Tyrion yeah. says, "Yeah, but who will find you?" Well, he thinks it. Whatever. He doesn't say it out loud. Yeah, but no, it's, John's I being, felt it. John has has very much so. He has hero syndrome. Uh, from what we've seen so far. He wanted to go out with Benjen. He was ready day one. I'm, I'm a big, strong man. I'm 14 now or whatever. Uh, and he's doing it again here. Uh, you know, I mean, what do you think? Is, is well, John going out to find Benjen? That's actually really interesting that you asked because I was thinking about this myself. Is I, honest to God, thinking back on the TV show and the three mm-hmm. seasons or so that I watched, I don't remember much of John besides him being a novice yeah. at the King's wa- uh, at the at the Night's Watch. Well, you know, like in a typical fantasy story, the next step here is the hero runs off in violation of his orders mm-hmm. to go save the day. Yep. Uh, so is that where we're headed? Well, well, that's the thing. In my mind, I could see that happening, but I don't know, and I am curious, and I don't have a prediction. Okay. Will that running off? I do think that it will happen, or something along that he'll be given a leadership moment or whatever. Okay. But I don't know if that will support him in growing into the leader he needs to be, or if it will humble him into being the follower that right. he doesn't know, you know, the that, that is from grace, uncertain so, yeah. of his own abilities and whatever. I assume because he is a character that he has a role. Yeah. But, uh, Seems like a safe bet. yeah, I feel, I feel confident in that, but I really don't know what his, his trajectory and path is going to be. It wouldn't surprise me on either. I could okay. see him stepping up and into everything he thinks he can do. I can see him being humbled down to, a, a smaller position so that he has to go through the, you know, the the the, the motions of learning yeah. how to be a leader. Okay, well, uh, you don't have to give me anything concrete on that, but I am going to ask you for something concrete on this. Where is Benjamin gone? Is he dead? Are we seeing him again? Is John going to find? I mean, you don't. That's exactly what you just refused to answer. Yeah. But, okay. Where, yeah, where but, do you but, land on that? I I don't know, but I do think that it's a moment of. Uh, like, I know we used to say this a lot, and I'm going to keep going back to it, but, like, inciting incident. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but in the sense of, like... Well, well, make a prediction here. Let's get you on paper. Yeah, and, and I will say, before making a prediction, that I think that Benjen's disappearance 
is an like I don't care about Benjen, yeah. nor do I think he's important. Okay. Uh, so number one, I don't care if he's dead. I, I don't mean, care his if he comes back. Might be more important than him as a character. Exactly. Yeah. The disappearance is going to make John, I assume, need to do something that will lead to this question that I have. Uh, but yeah, I'm gonna. If I have to make a prediction, he's dead. He's followed right in the footsteps of Royce. Okay. And I would actually take it even one step further. Back to what Sir Mormont was just talking about with Tyrion. Mm-hmm. The Night's Watch is dying. They are not strong enough to face whatever it is that's coming down the pipe here. And that I assume Jon is going to be a key character in whatever that is. All right. But Benjen is, in my mind, 100% dead and not because of the wildlings. Okay. Not because of something normal and, and, and digestible. But because of something, because of the winter that is coming. Okay. There is some part of winter that is consuming this, and I think Benjen's gone. All right. That makes sense. So that, uh, that brings us to Arya, too. Oh, Arya. You boring, boring character. What? I'm sorry. Oh, no. I'm saying it. This chapter was dumb. We meet one boring. of my favorite characters in the whole series in this chapter. Was it Ned? No, we met him a while ago, Michael. Was it... Was okay, it? Wait, no. I need to make sure of this. You know that Ned Stark's been around since the first chapter, right? Well, I'm going to say this too. I just got to make sure. Ned's full of himself. Well, uh, I'm sick of Starks. All right. Tyrion's all right. great and fun. Jon Snow, the man. I'm happy and excited. Daenerys, who we'll Snow talk about not in a Stark. Moment. Yeah, I like it. Hashtag Snow not Stark. All right. Trend it. Oh my god. I'm going to say. It. I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to comment that now on, like, T-shirts that I see in clothing. I'm going to be like, oh, Snow Not Stark. I'd wear that. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, take us away. Get us into this boring chapter. You all right. Well, it starts at a meal. I feel like this happens a lot in the southern chapters, actually. They love eating. They do. And it sounds delicious. It does. I, I'll tell you now, I think this is the first time we really get it. Uh, I think every fantasy series I've ever read has something that the author likes to describe in too much detail, and Song of Ice and Fire's version of that is food. Mm. Uh, We get a lot of really detailed, ooh, and then they ate this, and then they ate this. So I'm comfortable skipping that whenever it happens. I've got bad news, though. Uh, The movie Hook did the best description of food visually during the the food fight scene. scene, Amazing scene. Everyone else needs to let go of food. Rufio, Rufio, Rufio! (laughs) (laughs) Woo-hoo! Okay, uh... (laughs) Anyway, um, this chapter, and I'm going to talk kind of high level for a second before okay. touching on the specifics, but we, th- this chapter touches on a few different things from Arya's perspective, but it really starts with, we're now getting to hear Arya's emotional reaction to the situation that happened a few chapters ago with Sansa. Yeah. What we remember with Sansa, during the Sansa chapter, is that Sansa went on a date with Joffrey, basically. Yeah. At which point Joffrey got drunk. This is my right, my, my reading of it. Joffrey got kind of drunk and a little full of himself, decided to pull out his sword and threaten a poor, like, like butcher's child who yeah. was playing with Arya. Whose name you can never get. Mitchell. Sure. Mychondria. Yeah, the powerhouse, powerhouse of, of the cell. cell. <laughs> nice. Jinx. We didn't even plan that. Uh... But anyway, the point is, is that, and then, and then he got beaten. Joffrey got beaten, which led to a snowball effect, you know, sort of a domino effect to these characters where Arya basically got lost her friend who was playing with her, Micah, uh, the threat to her dire wolf, the killing of Sansa's dire wolf, some horrible relationship now from threat, that. Threat to Arya's dire wolf that led to her, uh, Harry and the Hendersons thing. Oh, yeah. Dire wolf. I'm going to be honest, I've never seen that movie. Me either. I only know it through references in other media. Like 30 Rock. Yep. Fuck yeah. Mm, Explicit. Note it. (laughs) 
Uh, but anyway, the chapter starts here. We're on Arya 2, I think you said. Yes. Uh, but Arya basically is saying that she, basically she's in her emotions, and I understand why. She's sitting at dinner, but she feels totally isolated. She doesn't like being in King's Landing. This world is not for her. She doesn't love it. And who comes in right away, which is her father. Yeah. And if she thinks she's having a bad time, she knows her father is having a worse one. Well, I don't know about it. I mean, he's struggling with the politics. And we saw that last episode when, when we were in his head. He's not enjoying that. But Arya's really dealing with some serious grief and depression. And, you know, we, we get a lot of this. I'm mm-hmm. um, skipping ahead and we'll, we'll come back to some of the specifics. Yeah, that's I think there's details we need from this scene. But she blames herself for her friend's death. And mm. honestly, that's not totally wrong. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean that in a sense that it's her fault. She didn't do anything wrong. But she, as a small child, did not fully understand the the class and hierarchy dynamics at play there, and really got this kid swept up in them, and it led to his death. And so, of course, any child, any person is going to feel some responsibility from that, and she's really suffering because of it. And I will say, I, I'd even go further with that, too, is that... Well, I, I kind of want to distill a little bit of what you just said. In the sort of sequence and chronology of this chapter, we go from her emotions in her own head. She's sitting at the dinner table. She really feels sick. She doesn't love what just happened to everything that you just said. And in fact, she runs away from this table, basically, yeah. and goes to her room where finally Ned comes to her. Yeah. So before we skip ahead to that, just, uh, again, some brief plot moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really learn here that the tournament that Ned wanted to make not happen mm-hmm. in his honor is going forward. Definitely happening. Jory Cassell brings that up. Sansa's really pumped about it, wants to make sure she can come. Septim Dane actually steps in and convinces Ned, Sansa, and Arya should be allowed to go. Uh, Arya does not want to go. This is not her style of thing. Um, Ned excuses himself because of his mood before Arya leaves. Um, mm-hmm. But we actually get a really interesting conversation here or not conversation, but thought process from Arya. She's thinking about her loneliness because they really haven't been spending much time with the men. And we learn that she got her instinct and her ability to make friends with anybody from Ned, who really feels strongly that they need to know the people around them, not just the nobility, but everybody who is with them. Uh, And so there are just some great lines here that I think are really nice. Her father used to say that a lord needed to eat with his men if if he hoped to keep them. Know the men who follow you and let them know you. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger. Uh, And then every single night when they were at Winterfell, he would have dinner with somebody else, Mm -hmm. another member of the household, uh, and really talk with them on their own terms, especially about the things they were responsible for, but presumably the things they're interested in. You know, talk about the forge with the blacksmith, talk about the horses with the the master of horse, uh, and really make those individual relationships that we also see Arya making the same, similar to what she did with Micah. Right. I will also say that this chapter, I think, really breaks into three different pieces. We have Arya in her feelings yeah, and really trying to deal a lot with exactly what you said, the trauma that she just went through, how different this world is down here in the south from where what she has known up in the north. She was at the dinner table going through this. Her father comes in, excuses himself. She runs away, away to her room where she kind of finds needle her sword yes. and holds it dear to herself. And finally, her father kind of comes because... Because Arya ran away. Arya right. is not acting he's right. She, she's been tattled on, basically. Uh, and he's now there to check on her. her whore, check on her or, uh, you know, reprimand her, whatever it might be. And he comes in and finds her with the sword as well. Yeah. And he gives, again, this very Ned Stark sort of support. 
noble acknowledgement of Arya's needs and her emotions while also understanding the formality of where they are, trying to embrace her and support her. And you even mentioned this when we were during, like just now during the Tyrion chapter, you know, saying, let me give you some knowledge. Yeah. Winter comes and the lone wolf dies. The pack stays together. And you need to understand this. Support your sister. Be a part of what we're a part of here. And I think it's great insight. And especially being that it's an Arya chapter and it's from her perspective, Mm -hmm. similar to the Bran chapter, the Bran one. Yeah. Where he, you know, Bran is... seeing that as a dad. Exactly. Soaking up this noble fatherly advice. And I love it. And not only that, it takes one step further where Ned finds his daughter Arya with her sword and says, you know, I'm not even surprised to see this, basically. You you remind me so much of my sister. Sister Lyanna. Sister Lyanna. And if she... They share the wolf blood. If she was allowed to have a sword, she would have had one all the time. Yeah. Uh, Which I think then quickly is followed by part three of this chapter, which is Ned has actually found like a teacher for Arya when yeah. it comes to sword fighting. Uh, and I think she he calls himself or, or is titled, and I don't remember, but but like his, her dance teacher, basically. Uh, but this is now she's getting a formal training. And, yeah. I, and I will add, by the way, to this, that on the one hand, the sort of wonderful fatherly gift that this is, on the other side, and it's not really talked about here, but I can only imagine that this character of Arya must feel even more upset about Micah, knowing that she could have had a real teacher yeah. and not put him in in this yeah, position. Yeah, maybe. I, I I think this is primarily a character sequence for Ned before mm. we, we get into it. And I think, you know, it's really great to see him as a parent, but we also get a little bit more depth to him, a little bit more nuance. And, you know, you may disagree with that. You're sick of him. Uh, but as much as we talk about his honor, we get some less rigidity from him here. Mm. Uh, you know, he he's breaking societal norms to let Arya deal with her grief the way she wants to and to let her be herself, which hmm. is, you know, what we've talked about before, her need to break out of the gender role that's been assigned to her and to really live uh, honestly to what it is she's trying to do. And this is what he's encouraging her to do, which seems to be mm. fairly atypical in this culture. And and something that Catelyn was very opposed to earlier, and that he was, at least in words, on Catelyn's side with. Uh, but, you know, he also, he's just being so honest with her. She's He's treating her like an adult, which yeah. is so much of what it is she needs, like a full person. And it really resonates with her to the extent that she ends up apologizing to Septa Mordain for, you know, being a, a dick at dinner. Uh, And similarly, we also just see an expression from him. You know, he calls Arya out for lying about the situation with Nymeria. And he says, look, you know, your approach to that, you saved the direwolf's life. Even the lie was honorable. Right. And so his sense of honor really seems founded in this honesty, but in an emotional honesty more than a factual honesty. And I like that. And I do want to stress this. And I think we said it a little earlier, but I don't think we really focused on it here. But we do learn that uh, Arya, to protect her own direwolf, Nymeria has cast her out and said, you need to get away. And in fact, had to throw stones, you know, yeah, throw rocks at her direwolf, but to do it to save, save her own direwolf's life. I also do want to say, and and again, I don't think there's much more that I have to add to this chapter, but I do want to say that for the third part that we just talked about, she does get this fencing teacher. Yes. I, again, from a reader's point of view, I want to assume that her sword, her fencing skills are going to become something. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I, again, 
I know I just said it a moment ago, but thinking back to my memory of the TV show, I really don't remember Arya getting anywhere. Okay. I, I, I actually really, in my, my recollection, lose sight of Arya. There yeah. were some things that happened with Ned that I remember, some things that happened with Rob that I remember. Uh, but when it comes to Arya and even Sansa and, and, and Bran, I don't have any okay. real sense of it. Well, that's good news. We're getting into the point where we can start pinning you on predictions. Yeah. I so, do want to talk a little bit about this scene with her dancing master because Sirio Forel is the character I was referencing. I love this Spanish sexy man. Uh, Imagine him with a waxed mustache. Yeah, as you should. That's how I uh, So we refer to him as a, a dancing master, and this entire scene... Uh, is just really great. Like you said, he's teaching her sword fighting and fencing, uh, and this is a big piece of growth and honesty for her. But something that we've talked about before, specific to Arya, that really gets a central focus in this scene is the gender dynamics of it. Mm -hmm. Sirio Forel specifically calls her boy Mm -hmm. over and over and over again until she says, no, I'm a girl. He says, boy, girl, you are a sword. That is all. And I love that line because we've talked about before how what Arya is looking for is is self-actualization and the ability to be her own person Mm. outside of these roles. And this is now a figure, a teacher, somebody in her life who is willing to say, you are what you are. In your role with me, we are here to learn this process, learn learn the water dance, and uh, and and she really responds to that. I think too that that, and it's funny I hadn't thought about it until you were saying this, but I think it also shows a growth with Ned. Yes, uh, you know the fact that he's allowing this to happen, he understands what needs to happen here, he finds the right person for it. I don't think that Ned would have done this in Winterfell. You know, in the situation right. of Winterfell. And and so it's exciting to see that Ned's growing too, even from a chapter from Arya, a different character's perspective. But I, yeah, I agree with yeah. you. I'm with you. And I, I mean, I think we see that growth over the course of the, the chapter too, because at the beginning, Ned walks in and finds her with the sword and says, this is no toy for children, least of all for a girl. I ought to snap this toy across my knee here and now and put an end to this nonsense. Hmm. And he says, you know, we're trying to get Septa Mordain to teach you to be a lady. And Arya says, I don't want to be a lady, which I think has a, a wonderful connotation, both of the gender dynamics, but also of that specific role in society. It's not just hmm. a woman, it's a noble lady. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of this chapter, Ned has relented and allowed her to pursue this interest that she yeah, has. very fair. So, you know, I think that covers us for that chapter. I love that chapter a lot, but but it is a very quick one and brings us to Danny 3. We're going back across the sea here. And I do want to say, just as we get into Danny 3, that when I first read this chapter, part of me had a reaction that was, this is a character that grew very, very fast yes. in a very short amount of time, specifically the time being this chapter, in this from chapter, the beginning yeah. to the end of this chapter. But... I do want to stress about this because like, I was thinking about it as I was reading these chapters and thinking about that we were going to have this conversation. Whereas in the Tyrion chapter that we just talked about, I felt like there wasn't enough conversation, you know, again, from that sort of like armchair editor perspective, right? not enough conversation about what's, what is really going on and the threats that are there and the fear of White Walkers or whatever it is that's coming winter. This quick growth of Danny felt very acceptable to me as a reader i really loved watching her go through these stages and finding her uh, i thought her character development up until this chapter let this chapter really take off the way it did and i loved it i had such a good time with this chapter yeah this was my same thought with this and i'm I'm actually going to break our standard format here not go in chronological order when talking about this chapter uh because i think 
this chapter makes for a really interesting inflection point for Danny, like you were like you were saying. Her last chapter ended with her getting the gift, receiving her silver from Drogo, abandoning fear and passivity as she wrote it, really for the first time, and then the sex scene with Drogo, which we talked mm-hmm. about, which was a really positive step into her life with Dothraki. And this chapter, it's in that last one was indicia of progress. This chapter takes pulls on those, starts us off in that standpoint where we've met her before and really grows her into a brand new thing Mm -hmm. and does so through a a set of different motifs Mm -hmm. that work in conjunction with each other. So I want to talk about those really one at a time. So just to start with, from a picture of setting, we get some, some geographic information about where she's been so far. They've been traveling through the rolling hills of Norvos, down Valyrian roads a thousand years old and straight as a Dothraki arrow, uh, through the forest of Cahor, and now they've arrived at the Dothraki Sea, which we've talked about before. It's a wide, flat grassland in Essos. Uh, And, you know, these geographic settings, which we get over the course of several pages, are introduced through flashback of the long journey so far. They really have traveled a really long way. We don't know the timing, but I imagine this is longer than what we've seen from Jon so far. And that helps summarize kind of that more static place that Danny was coming from to give us more of an impression of where she's going to end up by the end of this chapter. So that first leg of the trip, much like her introduction of the Dothraki culture at her wedding, started off very difficult. Uh, We get a lot of details about how isolated she's been. Drogo has not been paying significant attention to her, with a significant exception that we'll get to in a moment. Uh, Saddle sores. Yeah, she, the riding's been really hard. She's been spending all of her time with uh, Jorah Mormont and Viserys, who, you know, sucks. And <laughs> at one point along this trip, before we get into the plot of this chapter, into the, the timing of this chapter, she has another dream, similar to the one she had last mm-hmm. chapter. Another dragon dream. And... Uh, That dream, which we'll get to a little bit later, uh, really triggers a change in her. She starts to adjust to the riding, getting more comfortable with it. Uh, And not just the riding, but the riding. Uh, The sex with Drogo, which has been really bad so far, been very painful, um, shifts into something better and and really helps emphasize the change in her attitude. Uh, You know, so to start with, Drogo was only paying attention to her in sex. And as she embraces her life with the Dothraki, we're, we're told that she also begins to enjoy the sex with Drogo. Mm-hmm. By the end of the chapter, we have Dorea, this slave that she has for her who had worked as a prostitute before, teach her how to be good in bed. Uh, and she starts to take control of their sex life and, and start to have sex for pleasure with Drogo, which had not really... He had been more in it for gratification than, than mm-hmm. the enjoyment of it. Uh, and that exercise of control over that aspect of her life is a small... Uh, small metaphor, small analog for what is going on in the rest of things, in particular with this contrast that she has with Viserys throughout this chapter. So once again, we get growth and progress over the course of the conversation. The the chapter starts off by learning that Viserys could have skipped this entire journey. Mm -hmm. Illyrio told him, you can stay in Pentos with me, hang out here. They'll go do what they need to do. They'll come back. Don't worry. You're going to get paid. And he said, no. Uh, I'm going to stick with Drogo until I have the crown that I've been promised. And if Drogo tries to cheat me, it'll wake the dragon. Uh, Which is, I want to point out, funny. Yes. Like, it's one thing to see 
Viserys be such a douchebag with his sister, his younger sister, yeah, and all this. It's another to see him have this bravado in front of a warrior king. Yeah, uh, it seems and almost also stupid. Illyrio, who is financing everything he has. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of being a dick to this guy. Yeah, given him absolutely everything he has. Absolutely. Yeah, and Viserys, we learn in the moment, is really having trouble adjusting to the Dothraki lifestyle. He's still wearing the same silks that he was wearing before. They're wrong for the climate, and he's dirty and gross, and he's wearing armor that he shouldn't be wearing while riding. And, you know, it's it's such a huge metaphor for his broader circumstance. He cannot adjust to the world around him. Mm-hmm. I am the king. The world has to adjust around me. And it really causes him huge issues as he chafes under first Drogo, then Danny, as she begins to assert more authority. And so the present of this chapter starts with Danny stops the procession of Dothraki. She wants to go riding and explore the grasslands. And Viserys catches up to her and finds her. And like I was just saying, is livid that she would dare to command everyone to stop because everyone includes him. Uh, and, And this conflict, this altercation starts, he rides up and yells at her and falls off his horse, which is yet another emphasis of of just how badly he's doing here. And in response, for the very first time, we see her push back on him, literally. Uh, And when he reacts with anger and physicality, the other Dothraki stop him, physically put a a whip around his neck and ask Danny if she wants them to kill him. Uh, which he says no, but instead take his horse, make him walk, which is the biggest insult in Dothraki culture. Yeah, walkers are in a horse culture to walk is the the greatest criticism. Yeah, I, I think we heard it's the elderly and the sick and the children. So this guy who wants to be king is now in that world, and so really that that contrast is just so central to this. We have Viserys, who has always been this kind of pitiful guy a lot of self-confidence not attached to anything waning and Danny coming into her own. And this causes, leads us to the central conversation in this, which happens between Danny and Mormont, who at this point decides mm-hmm. to abandon Viserys. Yep. Viserys tries to order him and he says, no, I follow Danny now. And I want to ask, by the way, Mormont is the spy that Rob, I'm sorry, Robert. Robert, yeah. Has said is is like his like inside man, right? Yes. This is the same guy, Mormont. Yes, exactly. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. So so we heard uh, that Varys got reports from him. That's how Robert knew Danny was getting married. That's what led to him ordering a hit on her, in effect. And I will say, because I, I actually really liked this, knowing that Mormont was this guy, is because there's a moment where Daenerys basically comes to the realization that Viserys will never be king. Yes. And that he's too pitiful and can never lead an army. And I think that with at, simultaneously, not because she says this, but really as she's recognizing this, Mormont also... Mormont? Yes. Mormont also is realizing the same thing. Yeah. And, and whether it's out of deference to who he realizes is the true leader in this relationship, Daenerys, or he realizes it as a spy, I've, I've been spying on Viserys... But I know that he's not really he's the, not threat. the threat. It's going to yeah. be Daenerys. Ooh, that's interesting. Uh, but either way, both of these characters have now come to the same realization. Right. There is one person who will be the threat, who is the up-and-coming leader, and it's going to be 
Daenerys. Yeah. So there's there's really two pillars to this conversation. There's one on leadership, they, and they go together. There's one on leadership and, and the nature of leadership, and one on home and the concept of home and what that means to each of them. And they really work together. So the first one with respect to leadership, like you were saying, they both kind of realized together Viserys is not going to be the leader. Mm-hmm. And not, you know, not the king in a tangible sense, but rather he cannot be the ruler of men. People are not going to listen to him and go where he commands. Uh, and Danny really realizes that she wouldn't even want Viserys as king. He wouldn't be very good at it. But her initial instinct is, I've heard for years, he's been telling me for years, Illyrio has said it, the common people are waiting for him. This is the heir to the throne. I I love this moment, by the way. I love this in this chapter. So she says that, and what what does Mormont say? Mormont's line in response, I'm just going to quote the whole thing here. The common people pray for rain, healthy children, and a summer that never ends. It is no matter to them if the high lords play their Game of Thrones, so long as they are left in peace. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah. And I think like this is this is a fascinating moment because we see Danny coming into her own as a leader. And the first conversation we see her having in this context is about what does it mean to be a good leader? In this context, what what Jorah is telling her is what it means to be a good leader is to take care of the people, is to provide for them, and to uh to make sure that they have what they need. That's so funny because I actually read that that sentence that that's that reaction that he has with the same attention that you just gave it here but i had a different takeaway from hit me which was the leaders are playing a game that is unrelated to the reality of their people yes and that you know they're playing this game of thrones but the people will always have the basic needs that they always have and they just don't care well you you interrupted to it make an echo effect on the name of the book, which I think is fair. But Game I, of Thrones. The last line of this quote, I think, is maybe the most important. Is it Game of Thrones? It is no matter to them if the High Lords play their Game of Thrones so long as they are left in peace. They never are. They never are. You yeah. need some ruler to acknowledge, I am having mm. my squabble over the succession, but I need to find a way to protect the people in this. I need to find a way to get them their food, get them the bread and circuses, not as a distracting metaphor. I guess that's just the wrong phrase to use here. Sure, but, but I, yeah, I yeah, understand what, the, what you're them. saying. Like, And I think this makes for a really interesting follow-on on the Arya chapter we just had, where we learned that this has been Ned's central focus of leadership. He is taking care of the people around him. He is taking care of the common people. He brings them up to sit with them. I want to hear about your wants. I want to hear about your needs, about your life, and to understand you so that we can embrace that social contract, that idea that I as Lord am providing something to you in exchange for your loyalty to that's me. That's so funny to me that, the, like, 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 again, the, the, that's the, not just perspective, but sort of the frame and, and the, the, that you're seeing some of these conversations. Like, I see, I want to say this better than I'm thinking it. Like, in this context... I think, let me rephrase. Yeah. W- one of the things that I love about this Daenerys chapter is that I think Daenerys is getting a dose of reality in the way that Arya just got a dose of reality from yeah. her father in the situation that she's in. I think that Daenerys in this chapter is starting to understand what leadership means, that it is a game with other leaders, yes. but at the same time that there, there are the, 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 the plebs, the There's a responsibility plebeians... Exactly. Who have needs as well, but don't care about these political games. Right. As a foil to that, I think that Ned 
wants to care about the people, but is also too involved and enmeshed in the games. Well, this is what we just saw. He is no longer having these dinners with the men. He came Mm -hmm. to King's Landing to play politics, and now he's not doing this anymore. And I think that... Well, right, exactly. And I do wonder... You know, it's funny, because we talked about this for a second in the Tyrion chapter, looking at Jon Snow. What is about to happen to Jon Snow? Will he become... Step up as a leader? Will he fall and need to climb from that fall as a as a right. leader but what, what i find his claw uh, reach a challenge fail and then find his way back to leadership but something i think that is a really nice parallel between the Tyrion chapter with the on the perspective the view of john and what we see here that daenerys is starting to realize is that there are core realities that affect larger populations that because of that are more important than this Game of Thrones. Right. The, the the threat of beyond the wall is more important than this Game of Thrones. The understanding of what yeah. it means to be a leader with the Dothraki as a as a queen Let's, is more important than what Viserys's you know silly thoughts of leadership might right. be. Let's focus on on the things that matter, on the things, the tangible aspects. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that brings us to the second half of this conversation mm-hmm. with Jorah, which I said was is about home. Because he gives this quote, and Danny asks him, what do you pray for? And Jorah says, I pray for home. I want to mm-hmm. go home. And she thinks to herself, so do I. And this is the clearest turning point we have. Because back in, in Danny's first chapter, we hear her think about going home. And going home to her means the house with the red door. The red door. It means returning to childhood. It means being like those carefree children she heard out the window and getting to live that life again. But now, it was King's Landing in the great red keep that Aegon the Conqueror had built. It Mm -hmm. was Dragonstone where she had been born. In her mind's eye, they burned with a thousand lights, a fire blazing in every window. In her mind's eye, all the doors were red. This is the first time that she thinks King's Landing is home. This is where I need to return to. I need to take charge. Viserys is not a leader in any sense. She's not going. He's not going to bring us home. He's not going to lead these people. But maybe I would. Maybe I could. And you know, she closes this out. the The only knight who follows Viserys, uh, the the only one who listens to him, Mormont, reviles him as less than a snake. Which brings us to our last motif of this chapter, which, as always with these Westerosi, is their sigil. Uh, for the Targaryens, it's the dragons. Mm-hmm. And we get this dragon theme throughout this chapter with Danny once again. Viserys is not the dragon. He likes to talk about himself as the dragon waking the dragon, but mm-hmm. it is not him. Instead, what we get is Danny's transformation comes through the dragon dream, like I mentioned before. But unlike last time, Viserys isn't there. There's no Viserys in this dragon dream. She dreams of a dragon covered in her blood. It breathes fire over her and burns her to nothing, a scouring, cleansing fire. And when she wakes, she becomes part of the Dothraki world. This is a transformation for her through fire. She is able to adapt to her circumstances and grow stronger. And then we get a couple of mentions of the dragon's eggs that you'll remember that mm-hmm. Illyrio gave Yeah, I wanted to say that too, yeah. When she wakes up from the stream, she goes to them and they're strangely warm. And again, after her conflict with Viserys, she goes to them and they're strangely warped. And then at the end of the chapter, she goes and she bathes. She takes a bath and she asks Eerie, Jiqui, and Dore if they know anything about dragons. I want to hear more about this animal, this creature that is the representative of my house. And we get this, this 
you know, a little bit of world building from her where she thinks about magic died in the West, in Westeros and the area of Essos where they are when the doom fell on Valyria. But she's heard stories that are still around. There are plenty of magical creatures further east in these places, the Jade Sea, Yt, and Ashai. Eri and Jiqui both say that these are the two Dothraki maids. There are no more dragons. Everyone knows they are terrible, evil beasts. They were hunted down, they were killed, and they do not exist anymore. And at this point, Dorea, who is Lysini, she is not Dothraki, says, oh, you know, I actually heard something different. I talked to a trader from Karth who said they came from the moon, which is really an egg. An egg. There used to be a second moon. It wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat, and the dragons came out. And one day the same thing will happen with the other moon. I love this, this uh, the, the phrasing and the language of this Irian juke. We disagree. The moon is not an egg. It's a god. It's the woman wife of the sun. Uh, and so I just really like these stories because this dr- the dragon, waking the dragon, the dreams Danny is having are such an emblem of her strength and her transition, her, mm. her transformation. Uh, and... You know, from here, we see Danny, like I said at the beginning, move into taking control of her life with Drogo, taking control of her life with the Dothraki, her sex life, and moving into that. Uh, and finally, at the end, much like the moon goddess uh, that they were talking about, or the, the moon that is an egg, she has this sexual encounter with Drogo for the first time, enjoyable sex that she's having with him, and the chapter ends with her getting pregnant. Right. I I think that... I wanted to emphasize a handful of things that you had brought up throughout this chapter because these are the things that stood out to me. And I, and I agree with, not just agree, obviously like the telling that you just gave of this chapter is exactly this chapter and in all of the best ways. But I think that some of the things that stood out to me were that not only was there the dream again of dragons with her blood on the dragons and what that led to her thoughts of, but there's a physical change that happens to her. The... The the saddle sores that she went that that she was experiencing, you know, the, the, yeah. the pain that she had started to feel cured almost, and that she was getting better and better from it. I also really wanted to stress that, really fixate and stress on the 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 sensation of heat that she's starting to feel in a very real way from the eggs. So we have the dream that happened. We have these eggs that seem to be coming more and more real to her, and. I'll add to that that sort of pregnancy that seems to come out of that Drogo affair. But I will also add to this well, as married. I mean the affair of oh, shut up. Uh, the <laughs> to be subtle about it. Uh, but I want to add one last thing to this as well that really stood out to me. And I really really loved this part and this goes into what I said at the beginning of our conversation about this chapter and her yeah. growth. As she is ending her day with her three gift friends these three different women she asks one to stay and this is the one that teaches about womanly ways yes and what i I took from this but sure womanly ways but something i loved about this is that she is starting to internalize the politics and she like like this was a gift to her so that she could learn womanly ways and she has now taken this gift and applied it in the most appropriate of ways to herself that she then takes it and has this moment with with Khal Drogo. Yeah. And where she becomes a leader in that moment. She found not only was this a gift to learn how to sex up her man, <laughs> 
but she found a way to leverage it as a tool as a leader. Yeah. And I thought that was brilliant. And I just thought it was such an, a demonstration of her growth and a demonstration of who she could be as a leader to the Dothraki, yeah. to whatever this means for her as a Targaryen, I mean, yeah. whatever that might be. So I, I, I was, I was really enraptured by this chapter and her growth and everything that she went through and really excited to see where this is going to go. And and I want to, again, I, w- I want to say I want to make a prediction. Okay. But when I say I'm going to make a prediction here, what I really mean is hope. Okay. I, Those can go together. I appreciate that. I I can see Danny's character and story arc never making it to King's Landing. Okay. Interesting. She becomes a Dothraki leader, and all of a sudden, this story of Game of Thrones splinters. Okay. We have the Starks and the... The the Westeros story. Exactly. You know, what's happening on that throne, and then we have this Daenerys uh, Dothraki story of what happens elsewhere, and maybe that actually becomes the kingdom that's important. Okay. And there's a diminishment... Of King's Landing yeah. and Westeros and all that. See, I really love you saying that because I, I think one of the themes here, and we get it through her clothing, through her style, and Viserys gets really mad about it at one point, but he contrasts with this, that she is reaching her strength and her control over her situation by adapting and by assimilating into the Dothraki culture and mm. becoming more like them accepting their ways and adopting their ways because these are things that they have developed to survive in the system that they live in and that specifically grows really nicely out of her wedding chapter where like i was saying we were getting such an othering of the dothraki through her eyes that this was something strange she was uncomfortable with it not because it was fundamentally wrong but because she was not used to it and we see this growth of her reaching a point where she can begin to adapt and accommodate it. And then we get that throughout the chapter, step by step by step. And that's how she grows and gets more comfortable on this travel until we get to the end when she flips the typical marriage rites of the Dothraki on their head. And she brings something new, something of her own, something of her own mm-hmm. culture to her relationship with Drogo. And, you know, it's really that melding of herself and who she is on a fundamental level as a person mm-hmm. with the population around her and the world she's found herself self in. And that's really such a sign of strength. And I'll add, I think it's a really amazing foil against what we're seeing the Stark family have to go yes. through. So whereas Ned is trying to help his daughters and his family understand the roles they need to play and fit into, Daenerys is really coming to an understanding of how she can expand that role. Yeah. And I just think it's an amazing leadership moment and an amazing growth moment for her. And I, I've, I've just really loved this chapter. I and really had a good a time with her as a character. Arya there too. That it's, yeah. it's yeah. really about being able to accept that internal strength, that internal fortitude, and find ways to bring it to bear while also bringing in what from around you you can to adapt to the circumstances. We haven't seen Arya reach that second side of things yet, Mm. uh, but maybe at some point we will be able to meld those two. So I will say, as sort of a little bit of a coda to the end of this conversation today, for these three chapters, I thought these three chapters were such a wonderful diversity of perspectives. Definitely. And for me, I look at you know Tyrion as a Lannister, I don't see a lot happening and changing right there. Obviously, there's more to come from Cersei, I'm sure, and Jamie, 
But yeah, we haven't seen them in a while. We haven't. Uh, but I will say that the Tyrion chapter I thought gave a good perspective on John, and it's interesting to start thinking about where is John about to go, and I don't know, and I'm very curious about that. Same thing with Arya. Interesting to see Arya's perspective of her father in the situation and her understanding of this situation and how fraught it is and what she needs to now start to do to mature in her role. And then to also come here with Daenerys the Targaryen and see her starting to understand how weak her brother is and really starting to understand and, and, and embrace how strong she is. Yeah. And I thought this grouping of chapters was so wonderful as a launch pad into where these characters and, and their, by extension, their families and, and their entire storylines are really starting to go. So I'm very excited yeah. to what we're about to read next. And, and I can't wait to sort of see how some of these foundations that were laid here become uh, kickoff points into, into new sort of story developments. So that brings us to a perfect transition into what we're going to cover next. We're going to do three chapters again, continue pushing through the middle part of this book. So next week, that will bring us through Bran 4, Ned 5, and John 4, all Starks and some Snow. The Starkiest. Mm. Killing it. <laughs> well, I'm excited, man. I'm super excited to see where this is about to go. You did just say, and I am also excited about this too, but I'm excited to start to get out of the Stark perspective. I know we just saw Tyrion, but I thought it was a lot about Jon. Yes. But uh, I'm excited for these next three chapters, but excited to also get into some of the Lannister perspective as well again, I hope. But I'm looking forward to these three. Yeah, maybe we get some of that from Ned's chapter uh, in King's Landing. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's all for this episode. Next week we'll be discussing three chapters of Game of Thrones Ned Brand 4, Ned 5, and John 4. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast wherever you listen to it. And follow us on Twitter, at Bros with Banners. Shoot us a message. Feel free to respond, retweet. Any recommendations you can provide to people are always appreciated. Thanks, as always, for listening. And it's good to see you in person, Dan. Cheers. More soon.